You're listening to the tale of two podcasters from the 2007 Rabbit TGO Challenge, brought to you by the theoutdoorsstation.co.uk. This podcast is just one of a special series produced from a wealth of recordings made in May 2007 by two backpackers, Andy Howell and me, Bob Cartwright, as we made our way via two different routes from the west to the east coast of Scotland as part of the 2007 RAB TGO Challenge. Here at RAB, we're pleased to be involved in the TGO Challenge, which is the perfect testing ground for our clothing and sleeping bags. RAB has a Scottish heritage and over 25 years experience of making gear that performs in the varied weather of the Highlands as well as gear for the highest peaks in the Himalaya. Co-sponsors TGO, the great outdoors magazine, have been behind this May event since its inception in 1980. The framework and principle is totally unique. It isn't a race or a competition of any kind. The objective is to foster good fellowship amongst walkers within the framework of a challenging 200-mile expedition. The start consists of a series of sign-out locations on the west coast, from Torridon in the north down to Ardrashaig in the south. Each challenger, solo, couple or group makes their way via a high route, a low route or a mixture of the two across Scotland to finish anywhere between Arbroath and Fraserburgh on the east coast. There's a set two-week window to do this in and each participant submits their route for inspection prior to departure for safety and advice reasons. The places, however, are limited to 300, and details about the event, entry forms, past stories and photographs can be found in the October issue of TGO magazine and on their website. Each participant makes the challenge as easy or as hard as they wish. The extremes can be a remote high route, crossing wild country and not seeing another soul for days on end. Or a route which takes in the many social events, perhaps not camping at all and just using established accommodation all the way. Most people do a mixture of the two in different forms. This year I started with my wife Rose in the beautiful village of Plockton and Andy Howell with his partner Kate started from Strathcarran. We both carried recorders with us to capture our audio diaries and conversations which took place with other walkers as well as locals as we made our way to the East Coast. Yes, this is the tale and adventures of two podcasters. After the relief of finding space at the Altbeath YHA, we both slept really well and woke on Sunday the 13th of May on good form. If you've ever visited, you'll know that this hostel is a very special place, the value of which mustn't be underestimated. It certainly requires balanced, good-humoured management by a special person, and Jill Blair is that person. Jill, we're in the most remote youth hostel I understand in the UK. Um, what does it actually feel like to be the warden here? A uh, very special experience. Um, not as isolated as a lot of people think. You do get quite a few visitors through the day dropping in for cups of tea and 
very, very rarely have a night alone, whereas quite a few village hostels will have more time alone than I do. So, I mean, we're, we're, we are literally... Uh, what, what is the closest uh, roadhead? Seven miles away, did you say? Seven miles, yeah, Clooney Inn. Clooney Inn, seven miles away. Um, so, basic questions. Uh, supplies and, and getting in basics of food and all that sort of stuff. How, where does that come from? How does it get here? Uh, basically, I get three nights off a month and I get land drovered out on the first and then someone takes over from me and I get the second and third off and get land drovered back on the fourth with a month's worth of tinned food. And then if I need firewood or coal, hopefully head office will bring that in with the Land Rover. Uh, but the the hostel isn't open all year round, though, is it? No, we're open from the 2nd of April till the 14th of September this year. Uh, October seems to be the real hard stalking season, so we've closed down for that now. But if anyone does want to come out of season, we do have the bunkhouses open all year round. When you first... Um got here now because this is your second year isn't it you yes, say yeah. yeah um when you first got here then you were dropped off um early uh, early april do you say uh what 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 conditions the place in how is it left is it all dry and secure and do you just walk in and just polish the surfaces <laughs> um it's not quite watertight building uh i basically had to uh, air out all the mattresses replace pillows put pillows in pillowcases dry out blankets uh put duvets in duvet covers uh, sugar soap all the walls, clean the entire hostel, keep the fires going for around three days, and then hopefully I'm ready for guests a couple of days later. And the reason you're sugar, sugar soaping everything, I presume, because it's had moisture and growth. and stuff. Just a tad furry, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're fairly fortunate this year, I gather, with the weather, so you're able to, to leave the windows open to air in. Yeah, yeah. I believe the person who started last season had fairly horrendous weather, so I couldn't imagine her opening up then. But, yeah, I had about three or four days of blue skies and sunshine. Really lucky. Um, now, I can gather by your accent you're not a local. <laughs> Uh, and uh, usually, obviously, uh, backpacking is associated with Australians yeah. and Australian <laughs> backpackers. So tell us how you have actually ended up uh, running a hostel here. Right. Uh, well, my dad was actually born over here, so I've got dual citizenship. I've actually been in Scotland for around five years now, and I've worked for the youth hostels pretty much that whole time. Uh, I decided I'd had enough of living in and wanted to have a real life and went out to work in the real world, found I couldn't pay off a credit card and eat. So I came crawling back to the hostels. I went for Tom and Tool Hostel, but they said, we'll, ju we'll just put you in uh, Glen Affric for a week and see if you like it. And if you don't, we'll uh, take you out and put you somewhere else. And uh, four months later, I was saying, can I have this next season? The, uh, it must take a, a lot of um, special qualities to be a warden. <laughs> and uh, I'm sure people who are into hill walking perhaps think it would be a nice thing to do. Uh, what, what, in your view, what do you think uh, are the qualities you would actually need? And is it really a spectacular job for somebody who's an outdoors person? I definitely don't think it's an outdoors person's job, this one. Uh, I believe the manager before me last season was a hill walker, very much into it, and was not here a lot. Um, believe the cleaning didn't get done too well. I do believe I'm the right amount of insane to run this hostel. Um, I'm quite happy to be very sociable, have people in for cups of tea at, throughout the day. I don't close between 10 and 5 like a lot of hostels in this situation would do. Um, but I do like to get my cleaning done and have a couple of hours to myself. It's not the sort of place a person who needs company could actually be because I really do like my time to myself. So, 
you did get a few hours through the day with no one, but you do have people popping in all day for cups of tea and that sort of thing. It's very sociable. Is there is there a certain common trait in all the, the other hostel, the, the, the wardens that you do you know? Is, uh, do you recognise amongst yourselves a, a certain uh, mentality? Uh, definitely a love of the old uh, hostel ethos. It tends to be what I would find to be a common trait. Uh, we s- do it more for the love of the place than for the money we get or uh, the prestige, really. <laughs> the fame, the fame even. <laughs> Definitely, not uh, the fame. With the um, news that certain um, hostels are closing, is there any danger a hostel as, as uh, well important as this will, will follow suit? It's really hard to tell. Um, you don't know why certain hostels close down or why others don't. Uh, we are on a peppercorn lease with the National Trust and I believe we have 14 years to go, but I do like anyone who drops in for a cup of tea and, if they're lucky, a bit of cake, to send an uh, email to the marketing at syha.org.uk and just say that they like this place being here. It's just to keep the name of this place up in head office's mind that people love it and do continue using it. Oh, that's, yeah, I thoroughly recommend people to do that. I mean, it's, it's, it would be a travesty to have mm. something like this close. Definitely. Um, if the SYHA let it go, I'm not sure exactly what the National Trust would do with it. It might turn into a bothy, it might stay as... But I don't know whether it would have a warden here who would keep the fires going and make cups of tea for passers-by. And wipe all the furry stuff <laughs> off the wall. Exactly. Uh, and in this particular spot, you were saying that you you really do actually love it here, the the uh, the solitude and so on. Oh, definitely. I'm I'm not a hill walker. I do suffer from migraine, so it just isn't my cup of tea. But I absolutely love the Highlands. I love being out here, and I love this building. It's if you read Burn on the Hills, the Scott family had have also had this tradition of inviting hill walkers in for a cup of tea and some scones and this type of thing. So I really do feel like I'm carrying on that Highland tradition. The the youth hostel, if people haven't been here before, is uh, a real um, oasis in the in the desert of the highlands sometimes when you're coming through as we did last night sopping wet and and feeling like drowned rats uh, and to walk into a glorious fire uh, and a cozy glow is one thing but you have the spectacular and i have to say it is spectacular after several days shower that's piping hot how does that work uh it's on the, on the back boiler from the coal fire i have had to actually learn how to run a coal fire which was quite fun last year uh, but I've now got that down to a fine art. Um, so we've got the hot shower, we've got flushing toilets, nice warm dry place and a cup of tea seems to be a miracle out here so people do appreciate it and I do love this hostel and the people who come to it for that reason. That it's so, so finally then, do you actually only have a certain amount of seasons at a hostel or do you, can you choose to stay here for, for many years to come? Uh, you can choose to stay as long as you like. This is my second season and I do plan to continue staying here for as many seasons as I can possibly do. About an hour ago we left Oldbeath uh, uh, YHA and the wonderful warm hospitality there and uh, roaring fires uh, which were uh, a joy last night after a, a fairly cold, chilly, wet walk-in um, and we got there uh, probably just in time because the weather came down a bit. Uh, this morning, uh, the clouds low. Uh, it's the day three blues, basically. We're both complaining of the uh, aches and pains and the cold neck and the 
stiffness that goes along with carrying a weight that we haven't been used to carrying for a while. Once we get past today, tomorrow, we'll be, uh, we'll be much happier. Uh, we met several people last night um, at the uh, YHA. Uh, everybody all seems to be heading for Coogee Lodge, which seems to have some sort of reputation as being a, um, a, <laughs> a den of iniquity, a hot spot of socialising, whatever you want to look, call it. Um, and then we're heading that way as well, but we, we're not intending to stay. We're hoping to, to get a bit further on. We've just passed a local who uh, was on the way to Altbeath who said that the weather forecast apparently tomorrow is um, pretty bad. Uh, and very wet and so on and we want to get over to um, drum the drocket uh, really before the weather hits in too badly we've got a I know we've got a fairly wet um, area to cross uh, so we're just coming down to the bridge to get across the river to um, cross over to the other side and, and head start to head towards uh, the uh, the lodge um, how are you feeling today Rosie yeah, not too bad. It's uh, you have to remind yourself as your shoulders are aching that uh, you're actually in a beautiful place and there's some such a lot to see and it's just turn around to look at the views in any direction to appreciate where you are and forget the aches. It's certainly a, there's a bit of wind though, isn't there? Oh, it's a, yeah, a really cold wind this morning. And that's it, really. I mean, we're uh, we, we were very lucky last night to uh, to get into the youth hostel and very pleased to get into the youth hostel. Um, uh, it's it's that. Second day, third day, when everything is wet and cold, and, and you've got that wind that can really take the um, the thrill off off the off the trip at this time like this. Um, one thing, touching a bit on gear, that has um, proved, as always, to be a vital part of um, equipment for for stuff like this, and one that we both agree that we just could not manage without, and that's the the walking poles. Yeah, that really helped. It wasn't until I started using them I appreciated how fantastic walking with poles is. It just takes so much pressure off you and gives you so much more stability, whether it's on rough terrain or crossing streams on uh, climbing hills. It's just, and coming down for that matter, in fact, everywhere. Uh, this year we're using the, uh, the Lecky carbon poles. Uh, last year we used the Outkit ones. The Outkit ones are um, certainly great value for money. Uh, but there's something about these lecky ones that seem a bit more um, streamlined, don't they? Yeah, definitely um, a bit more classy. They just they just carry easy, more easily and uh, sort of more slimlined somehow. Yeah. So, uh, but either way, whatever poles you use, they're um, I'd say they're absolutely vital for something like this. Although interestingly, it's the surprising the number of people we meet that don't use poles and refuse to use poles. So, how they carry heavy loads up and down these. Uh, climbs uh, and have maximum stability on the slippy um, uh, footing I really don't know but obviously everybody's different uh, it was interesting last night at the uh, YHA we met up with um, Maria and Stuart and Nan uh, Margaret. and Margaret and James and a couple of other guys um, how all of us have got um, systems and equipment and methods which which uh, are unique to our own needs uh, but we're all actually all quite happy with them aren't we yeah Marie was saying that uh, for example she she has she's a restless sleeper so the mummy sized sleeping bags that are tailored just don't suit her and she's got a Dutch one which is rectangular it's still downfilled and okay she says it's you know maybe a little bit heavier than the mummy but it gives her a better night's sleep so she's happy to carry it and similarly talking to Margaret who's 
on a 16th crossing. Lovely lady was saying you were talking about boots and she was saying she'd tried the Merrells like I've got with the Gore-Tex lining, but they made a feet Mendel's, sweat. Mendel's, sorry. And um, she's actually gone back to her old leather boots and uh, is much happier with those. So I think, you know, we're all sort of looking and trying and tailoring to find just what suits each of us. I think it's true to say that there's, there's no unique uh, range of equipment that will answer all your problems. Um, I think there's a set uh, range of items that will make life easier for you, but certainly specific needs you might have, you need to um, work a bit harder to tailor tailor those to, to sort those out yourself. Uh, we're fairly happy with our, our setup. Um, where we could go a bit lighter would be, of course, if we were just taking one set of cooking gear rather than two for which we're using for experimental purposes and comparisons. Um, but on the whole, it's only a, a few odd luxury items like deodorant and things like that that I think I'd, I'd be happy leaving out my bag. What about you? You were asking me yesterday if there's anything you'd leave out. Yeah, no, I mean, um, I always bring um, a slim book, which Bob doesn't. Bob brings all his recording stuff, but I, I wouldn't give that up either. I bring uh, usually some poetry because that's very easy to just pick up and put down and ponder on as you're traipsing through the landscape um, but I mean the, this year it looks like I'm not going to use my shorts sunglasses and suntan lotion uh, as I didn't last year they were the only items I didn't use last year when I was on the challenge um, but Bob said he did it one year and if I he hadn't have taken those he'd have been a real mess so you just can't tell really plan for the worst hope for the best that's what I say so uh, yeah, it was quite a good, uh, good sharing of knowledge. Anyway, we've come to a point where the path split, so I just need to look at the map and um, work out which direction is home. And we'll uh, we'll switch back on a bit later on. Sorry if this has been a bit windy, but as I say, it's a very very um, sharp wind this morning, and I wanted to record something. When we arrived at Coogee Lodge, we found several experienced challengers already in situ, ready for an evening of good food and good company. One of which was Alan Hardy, who had done the trip many times before, and more recently had become a very helpful planning vetter to challengers, assisting many people out of route trouble before they walked into it. Uh, probably for the last six years, um, I was asked if I'd consider doing it, and gave it a wee bit of thought and then said yes and it's actually great fun do you um sometimes when you you see people's um uh, ambitious and their, their ambitions of what they're they're trying to do do you can, can you tell straight away they've actually got no experience of scotland's uh, potential terrain um in many cases you can um especially first or second timers they put in the most ambitious routes that you know are just impossible to achieve so again you come back with a wee bit of advice and say no I don't think this is on and make some suggestions as to alternatives that they could consider. So how many years have you actually done the challenge yourself then? This is my 20th crossing. Oh um, my word, congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've actually done, uh, completed 19, um, completed the mini challenge during the year of the foot and mouth and had one year when I had a wee accident and uh, had a tumble and had to withdraw. But uh, this, hopefully, if I complete it, is the 20th. 
Now, at the, on the Thursday nights, usually, when most people arrive at, uh, at Montrose, Roger does his, his speech and describes the emotions of um, the people that go through it for the first time and second time and so on. Um, what has been bringing you back for, for 20 times to do this? That is a difficult question. Um, the sheer enjoyment, I think, of, of getting away from everybody, getting out into the wilderness... Um, the sense of achievement, I think, from, from walking from one coast to the other, hard to describe, but there is something addictive about the challenge. It, it's something you've got to start and a finish. It's not like a, a, a recognised walk or a circular walk. It, it's just something unique, and you just keep coming back. You can't help it. Over, the, over that period of time, you must have been to every start point and, and uh, tried most of the... Mem the um, uh, routes that are that are potential through there because obviously the way the locks are laid out through Scotland it sort of forces you through bottlenecks um, is there any particular one that's that's memorable for any particular reason oh several um, a Malague start because that was my first challenge started a Malague in 1983 one of the wettest years we've had walked for 10 days in, in continuous rain and that'll live in my memory forever um, Torridon as an, another excellent starting point. Um, you're literally straight out into the hills there. But yes, I've, I've done all the start points, bar Plockton and the new one, which the name escapes me, begins with an A, um, which I haven't done. But I did have a look at Plockton last year, and it, it hasn't inspired me. Well, as it happens, we started from Plockton this year, and, and the, the feeling it gave us was um, uh, we've done Torridon, we've done Malague. Uh, you feel you've started straight away. But Plockton is a little bit of extra work somehow to to, to get away from civilization to get onto the hills, as it were. Uh, and I would say that was the, the, the lingering feeling it's left with us. Lovely spot and a lovely place to start from, but didn't feel that we'd actually started until day two. Mm. Yeah, that, that was my impression of it. But as you say, an absolutely superb village and a lovely setting. So maybe one year. <laughs> Excellent. Um, now, moving slightly on, I've noticed um, the couple of years that I have seen you, we haven't sort of touched base, but I, I, now I've got you uh, in my presence, I've noticed you've been carrying a very much a, a Ray Mears-type rucksack. <laughs> uh, and uh, fascinated as I am with the world of lightweight and uh, how people have improved their trips, um, I have to ask you, what on earth do you carry in a rucksack that size? Uh, I, I carry probably no more than you carry in yours. Um maybe a litre of whiskey to start with. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but that's my only, only comfort. I don't carry anything special. It is a big rucksack. Um, it's one I've been using. It's the second one of that sort, actually. Um, but I've been using that for probably 20 years now. It is comfortable. It is heavy. Um, and the reason I haven't changed that and a lot of my other gear is it isn't worn out. I'm a Yorkshireman. And until something is... <laughs> well past its best. I'm not going to replace it. But as and when, then, uh, yes, I'll go for something a wee bit lighter. But this year I've taken the side pockets off it. <laughs> oh, so I, I, I have noticed. I, yes, yes. <laughs> I'm not <laughs> tempted to put stuff in the side pockets. But just thinking back to um, probably 96 on the challenge, when a friend who was with me broke his ankle, and I was able to strap his rucksack on the top of that one, and walk for a couple of days, and it was still comfortable. 
heavy but comfortable. Yeah, my word. Well, in case people don't realise what we're talking about, it's uh, I'd say is it a hundred litre? It's a hundred litre Berg, hundred litre Berghouse. Oh, it's a Berghouse. It's yeah. military style Berghouse. It is indeed. Yes. Yeah. Yes, the one they had in the Falklands. A real man's rucksack. <laughs> Actually, I bought that just uh, uh, several months before the Falklands, and then when that cropped up, all the Berghouse production went to the army, and uh, you know you just couldn't couldn't get one for living the money. All right. And uh, over the uh, over the years, of course, I mean, I've only been doing it a few years and experienced um, a wide variety of weather. Uh, here we are standing doing this now in glorious sunshine after a fairly chilly start to the day. Um, what, what are your thoughts on the, on the weather for this particular crossing? Um, so far, it's not been too bad. Um, but what I have noticed over the years is every year is milder. I can recall in the, the, the first years of, of, of the challenge, waking up to ice on the inside of the tent and keeping my boots inside the tent so they weren't frozen in the morning. I've not had anything like that now for several years. Do, do, do you think the, the weather, I mean the weather patterns are obviously changing but it's, and it's getting milder, but do you think the actual range of weather that we're experiencing during this two weeks is actually uh, widened as well? One minute we're getting sort of freezing cold ice, next yeah, minute it's glorious it's, sunshine. Yeah, it's, it's always been like that. You can have all four seasons in 24 hours. Um, I don't. I don't think that's changed, but it's certainly a lot milder, um, a lot wetter than uh, for. A, well, I'm going to say a lot wetter. Um, we've had wetter, wetter periods. But the ground, even though I mean, uh, before I came, I was told that they'd had three weeks of glorious sunshine, and I was expecting the ground to be fairly dry. And I was surprised it isn't. Mm. Still very waterlogged in places. Yeah, very much so. Um, finally, I know that you've done a, done a stint in the control room. Um, uh, a couple of years ago, and uh, you, you've volunteered to do some more. Uh, what's actually life like in the control room, sort of during the two-week period? Do, I mean, it's a bit of a mystery to everybody, I think. <laughs> well, I'll be honest. When I first volunteered to do it, I thought, I'm going to be bored stiff. And I took books to read and uh, a notebook so I could start writing stories. And it was nothing like that. Uh, you're busy literally from 8 o'clock in the morning through till 10 o'clock at night, which is when the phone is turned off. Um, but you're still accepting calls and making notes right through to 11 o'clock at night. It is non-stop. It is great fun. Um, you get challengers who are very, very down. You've got to try and cheer them up. Um, try and persuade them to continue. I loved every minute of it. And I didn't get time. I don't think I opened one book. I certainly didn't write more than three or four words. <laughs> I know Roger's very proud of the of the simple but practical system. I, I certainly, um, the first year I arrived in the control room, I was expecting a sort of big glass screen with little dots on it where everybody was being tracked across, and he, he was saying, no, no, it's back to book and a bit of paper and calculator, and that's all you need. Yeah, absolutely right. If it, if it works, don't, don't change it, don't, don't fix it. it. Yeah. Um, yes, it's just a, a register with everybody's name and number and uh, all their phone-in points. And it's as simple as that. You know exactly who should be ringing each day, where they're ringing from. Any problems, you've got a copy of their route. We've got a complete set of the Ordnance Survey maps. Um, very, very simple. I can't see any reason to make it more complicated by computerising it. And what happens when your computer goes down? Absolutely, absolutely. So uh, on every trip, there must be a, a one particular high point that you look forward to. Um, uh, either getting out into the most remote spot or resting in glorious sunshine or or jumping into a lock or or the the meal at the end when you get when you arrive which what is your one single um uh, moment that you really look forward to 
raising a pint at the end of the challenge. Simple as that. <laughs> no, there are various other things. Um, you look forward to probably your first hill of the, the, of the challenge. Um, but certainly at the end of it, dipping your toe in the water, then going and having that celebratory pint, is, is that's magic. Well, it's 4.30 and we've just come away from Coogee Lodge, uh, that well-known den of iniquity to challengers. And uh, talking to the lady there, she's been welcoming challengers for the last, what, 20-odd years, did she say? Well, a long time. Long time. And she's actually stopped doing um, accommodation now, but appears to be uh, still um, welcoming challengers in um, the accommodation that she's done commercially. I think she's bringing to an end. So uh, do make sure you can get a booking if you're considering doing that in the future. But uh, a lovely sort of um, wood-built uh, family farmhouse um, with all the uh, the rest of the family each having a building around the place. Um, I think there's a riding stables there and some pigs. And it's quite a menagerie, isn't there? There's yeah. rabbits and guinea pigs and the dogs there. And yes, it's a real it's a real backcountry family setting. I think she said she was she'd had something like 17 or 18 for lunch from yeah, the family. family family at the weekend so you you can imagine there's lots of people around all over the place but it's a it's a real oasis of um, of welcoming um tea and buns as we've just had when we we're passing through she, yeah she, a, she spotted us as we were coming and offloading our rucksacks and we sort of said have we got the right place and she welcomed it into the kitchen and there was a huge pile of fruit and cheese scones and jam and butter and the tea was on and there was already a few challenges there sat there with the feet up including yes. uh, Alan Hardy. Alan Hardy and um, Maria and Stuart um, all enjoying and as we were doing as we were there several more arrived that had booked in for the evening um, but we've we've uh, decided to keep going we're going to keep going down the forest track uh, and see if we can find a camping spot so that allows us to get into Drumnodrochik fairly easily and hopefully at a reasonable time tomorrow we decided not to go over the tops but take the um, take the the uh, the, the uh, forest route um weather wise it's been once again very surprising this cold incessant incessant wind which seems to as associate um uh, the challenge with may is still there and it's still very cold down the neck and it all seems to be coming from the direction we're walking in and whichever direction we walk um, but uh, there's blue sky and there's a bit of sunshine there between the clouds, which keeps coming out and cheering us up, and then uh, and then it goes away again. And the temperature suddenly drops. But um, otherwise, it's good walking conditions. We're both dry. Um, we've packed away our wet weather gear, and uh, hopefully, next couple of hours we'll see us a bit further down the road, um, down at uh, Garve Bridge. I think is the area that we're aiming for to see if we can find a camping spot, and then uh, review the day. I think. Oh, okay, sounds good. Well, it's nine o'clock, and I thought now would be a good time to review the day. We've settled into our tent, we've had something to eat, and we're sort of at that exhausted stage with, where sleep is um, quickly going to be upon us. Uh, we left uh, Old Beath this morning, um, about nine o'clock-ish, um, and beetled down to Loch Afric, uh, in Glen Afric, obviously. Um, and that was a fairly easy walk, actually. Came through um, fairly fairly well, and, and uh, as we mentioned before, I just had the chill of the wind and so on. Um, got down to uh, the bridge uh, just before Afric Lodge, uh, where we stopped for a brew and met a few people 
um, and they were saying that um, it might be a better route for us, bearing in mind the trouble we'd had across the um, uh, the mountains and the and the, and the heather uh, the previous day, uh, to actually change our route to go through um, uh, what do they call it now, uh, Tomich, which is in the direction of Canich, uh, and then to head into the trees to come down to drum the drocket. Um, through the through the woods rather than over the top, and admittedly the the top did look like it was going to be a pretty wet experience, um, and that combined with the weather forecast that we'd heard from a couple of people that it was going to be pretty foul probably from tonight onwards, um, we're thinking perhaps prudence is the better part of valour. So we've decided to change the route slightly. Um, so we're going to head down towards uh, Tomich. Well, in fact, we've we're now camped near Tomich, uh, and then we'll um, take the uh, the back roads. Um, over to Corrymoney uh, and then through the woods coming in from the west straight to Drum the Docket. Um, one thing I do want to say is uh, for anybody listening to this that's thinking of doing the same route uh, to head to the Coogie Inn, um, there is uh, Coogie Lodge rather, there is one particular error on most maps which um, does throw you and uh, in fact it was the talk of the the lodge when I got there um, and that is the little lochen at grid reference uh, 209 um, 216 is not a little lochen it's a blooming great big thing uh, and you take the path um, up the up the the stream side there, and then head towards Coogee. Uh, uh, and as you come over the rise, you look towards the Lochan and think, "Okay, I'm on the right spot." And you know, take a bearing. And all of a sudden, the Lochan turns into something um, about five or six times the size that you're expecting. And uh, for a good half hour or so, I was a bit concerned that I'd somehow taken the wrong path somewhere, even though everything else seemed to fit on the map. Um, and the other thing as well is the woods that are shown on our map no longer exist. They've all been uh, cut back or cold or whatever the, the term is. Uh, so consequently, um, the uh, the hillside that I was expecting to be uh, a small lochen with uh, woods, woodland behind wasn't. It was a very large lochen with no woodland behind. Uh, and um, for a moment we were a bit concerned. But um, there were a few other people on the path well ahead of us and we recognised their rucksack. So... Uh, and they certainly seemed to know where they were going because they'd mentioned Coogie, so we thought we were on a safe bet, and sure enough, we were. But it's um, it's apparently a regular complaint from a lot of people, and it really throws them trying to get to Coogie. So we were, we came through Coogie, Coogie um, onto Garve Bridge. Um, we looked for somewhere to camp at Plodder Falls, um, which was disappointing. Then we came through Hilton Lodge, um, which is very eerie, a very strange atmosphere there, wasn't there? Yeah, I think it was... There's an old ruined house, which is probably uh, looks like it might have been quite grand, and there's just just odd touches, like there's um, a wall and obviously plantings of um, rhododendrons, and there's an, a wrought iron footbridge in the distance, just as if everything's fallen to pieces somehow. And yeah, it's it quite, it quite spooky it's feeling. It's quite an eerie yeah. feeling. Yeah, you saw the uh, the landscaping of the gardens and just sort of left all but overgrown and falling to falling into disarray yeah. it was quite sad almost it felt and yeah then, and there was another that other place you spotted which looked ideal again a nice flat pitch and it was in um a sort of like a crofter's um fallen down cottage um and it looked perfect until we got a bit close and you could hear a um, swarm <laughs> of uh i don't know whether it was wild bees or 
wasps or whatever, but uh, it was so... It was loud and it wasn't, <laughs> yes. and it wasn't very I just, far away. I just thought I could just imagine all night wondering if they were going to swarm. And, yeah, yeah. So uh, we didn't camp there. No, so we carried on going, and, and, and as we did so, we got to, um, to the edge of, um, edge of sub not suburbia, but certainly a few houses in the rural area. Uh, and all of a sudden, the uh, feeling comes over you to um, where are you allowed to camp and so on. And uh, uh, the, uh, the English feeling as opposed to the Scottish feeling. So we sort of um, bypassed a few houses and found a bit of sort of common land and we pitched up on there for the night by a stream uh, and uh, there's a road by, a roadway nearby and people have certainly slowed down as they've, they've come past so um, it gives us an uncomfortable feeling. But we're, we're, we're here, we're in the tent, we're settled and we'll be gone first thing in the morning so I'm sure they won't have, uh, have too much to complain about. So tomorrow we are, um, as I say, uh, probably... Um, Heading over to the Ford and Waterfalls uh, on the way to Corrie Money. Uh, and then um, hopefully we'll be into uh, Drum the Drocket uh, at a reasonable time early afternoon, all being well. Uh, anything else to add? What else have we been seeing today? Oh, I just have to say, I love the waterfalls. I've seen, we've passed some really spectacular waterfalls um, today. A few of them have been sort of marked, but lots of them are just just there and they're just fantastic so i've really enjoyed looking at all the waterfalls today there you go she's happy that's the main thing <laughs> <laughs> so um probably in some respects a bit of a boring day really it's been a lot of um a lot of uh it was a nice sunshine too we when, yeah well, the, when the sun out, the sun's out and really you're out of the wind it's really warm but sadly that doesn't last very long no. um so fingers crossed the weather's uh this stays good for the next few days and um we will uh, obviously report back in the morning as we set off. As you can hear in this piece, a very tired Andy and Kate appeared to have a tough day. And as you can see, they were only slightly ahead of us before veering off over the ridge in the direction of Fort Augustus. Well, a pretty hard slog today. Um, weather was good though, most, for most of the way. And we walked to um, Coogie Lodge. And then from Coogie Lodge had the first of those problems that uh, are inevitable from time to time. We decided to pick up a small path that uh, ran high across the moors and woodland and forest had been cleared, difficult to see where the path was. So at times like that, it's kind of always best to kind of look around and think, well, if I just climb that uh, ridge at the top of it, I'll be able to get my bearings, which we did. The ridge took a long time to climb, and on the top, loads and loads of more P-tags and P-bogs. Another person who was having a bad time of it was Darren Christie, a solo walker who was using a tarp and taking the really tough high route out of Malague. Fortunately for him, he met an experienced challenger, Phil Lambert, on day two, who realised very quickly that Darren wasn't at all well. So Phil kept him company in the hope they would make it down to an easier lower route. However, that wasn't to be. By day three, I say, I was in my tarp, I was being sick. Phil was trying to 
give me liquids to help keep me hydrated. But every time I had a sip of something, I was just bringing it straight back up. And I just wasn't in a good way. You, you started from a leg, um, and I presume you, you felt okay when you first started. Oh, yeah, the first day was fantastic. I felt really good. I'd got a bit of a sore throat, but it wasn't really bothering me. And, yeah, I made good time to target where I met up with Phil. And, and I presume uh, that was a, fair, a, a fortuitous bit of luck as well, because you're, the route that you were taking from Malague wasn't the uh, the boat over to Inveree, was it? No. Um, my original plan was quite an ambitious one that Dave and I had come up with, and David dropped out beforehand because of personal reasons, and I decided to go ahead but just stick to our low-level route, and my day two was now the most strenuous day that I'd got, and luckily I'd met up with Phil. Um, and, and what, so what happened then? Just to, just talk us through what happened at the end of day three into day four. Okay, I was still ill. I was able to keep some liquids down at the end of day three, and it was, the plan was to see how I was in the morning, but during the night I was being sick again, so in the start of day four, day, uh, Phil decided he'd crack on and try and get help for me because there was no way I was going to be able to get out under my own steam. So Phil took a uh, reading on his GPS, and the plan was for him to go to some lodges nearby, which were about 11 to 14k away, and if he couldn't get a phone there to walk on so he could get a mobile signal and get me help. Um, well, I know there's no mo mobile signal where you were, obviously, and no. in, in the end, I think he ended up walking something like 14 miles before he came across any help. Oh, yeah, he... He had a massive day before he was actually able to get a signal or get any help for me. And what Phil did was incredible. Uh, I think I'll always be grateful to him for what he did. So it was a superhuman effort as far as I was concerned. Uh, and, and sadly, when I, I spoke to him at the end, he was saying that the first people he came across actually refused to help. Uh, yeah, I, I'd heard that from Phil's wife afterwards, and I just can't believe that. Um, it's so hard to fathom out. So has it put you off um, doing the challenge again? No, um, I want to try again next year if I can get on it. Um, my wife's not too keen for me to go on it again, but I'll definitely be applying again and hopefully get on it. And I presume take a bit more of a sociable route just to just to dot the I's and cross the T's? Uh, yes, for the first time across. Uh, yeah, I mean, from from that point of view, for anybody doing it for the first time, what sort of mistake do you think you made, really, that uh, that, that unfortunately ended up in the in the being airlifted out? Well, I'd been ill with a chest infection a few weeks into the run-up to starting the challenge, and I thought that I'd recovered from it, but I'd had a sore throat, and there'd been some some signs that you wouldn't associate with it. That looking back. I don't think I was really recovered enough. I was probably still had a bit of it with me when I started. So it was ignoring my body, really, giving me some warning signs. So the, the I presume the rescue people were pleased to find you in one piece? Yeah, I think they were. They, it was, I was really relieved to see them. Uh, I was so emotional and they were... Oh, I can't thank them enough for what they did. They did such a good job. The two guys that were dropped off to check me over first. Uh, they handled the situation. They put a drip in my arm. They were fantastic.
And I presume you were taken then off to, to Fort William, were you? Yeah, I was taken to the Fort William Hospital, and the nursing, nursing staff there were incredible. I say, I can't praise them enough, really. They were really kind, they were support, very sympathetic and very supportive, and they did a fantastic job. I just, I can't thank them enough either. And hopefully I'll be back next year. That concludes this part of The Tale of Two Podcasters from the 2007 RAB TGO Challenge brought to you by the outdoorsstation.co.uk. 